From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. That helps us to understand that whatever the solutions are, either in our personal life, in our work of service, but also in the world of justice, they have to come from somewhere else. Because if we do it on our own, most likely we will be acting from the very same consciousness that produced the problems that we're trying to solve. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome to the show Father Adam Bucko. He has taught engaged contemplation for two decades, and he co-authored The New Monasticism with Rory McEntee and Occupy Spirituality with Matthew Fox. After 15 years working among the homeless and LGBTQ youth in New York City, he was ordained a priest in the Episcopal Church, and he currently serves as a director of the Center for Spiritual Imagination at the Cathedral of the Incarnation in Garden City, New York. Today we're talking about his recent book, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, Lessons in Engaged Contemplation. Adam Bucko, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for this opportunity to share with you, David. I'd like to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place, and it's a story that you tell in your book, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, but it's not a story about you. Instead, it's the spiritual writer and priest, Anthony DeMello, and he's on the streets of Calcutta in India, and he's about to get into the equivalent of public transportation there on the streets. He's getting into a little contraption called a rickshaw. Shaw, and he begins to have a conversation with the rickshaw driver. And I wonder if you could, for my listeners, frame that story that DeMello tells and what he and you learned from it. Yes, so I've learned about Anthony DeMello when I was probably 19 years old and on a search for vibrant spirituality that to save myself from myself. And Antoni de Mello was this Indian Jesuit priest and spiritual writer. He became quite famous in the 80s uh, and maybe even early 90s when people started really reading him. And he tells this story and as a way of giving you some background, uh, he was a kind of radical, but a very special kind of a guy. And later in my youth, when I spent some time with one of my mentors, Sister Vandana Mataji, who was both a Hindu Swamini and a Roman Catholic sister who lived as a hermit at the foothills of the Himalayas, Antoni de Mello was her first spiritual director. And I remember asking her about him, and she said, well, uh, Tony was just a free person. And I think that this story that I'm about to tell in many ways tells us how he got there, when and how his 
awakening into this freedom happened. And so, as you mentioned, at some point, he got into a, a rickshaw and met this rickshaw driver on the street of Kolkata. And apparently, the rickshaw driver was very poor and was in the process of dying from some kind of painful disease. Some people say that it was TB. The man was so poor that he had even sold his skeleton to a local laboratory before he died. And that would be the only inheritance he would be able to leave for his children. And so when Tony DeMello first came to face with this man, he was just shocked. Not because of this man's poverty or sickness, but rather because of his complete lack of fear. The man's face was just radiating with freedom and aliveness. And he seemed completely at peace. And so after hearing his story and somewhat confused by this man's peaceful countenance, the Mello asked him, come on, aren't you afraid of the pain and suffering that is coming your way? Aren't you afraid of dying? And the response was, this man's face just lit up and with a gentle smile, he answered, why would I be afraid? Today, I am still alive and in touch with the joy of being able to breathe and to see and feel things. Yes, that there will be and there is already pain, he said, but I have complete trust in God who is life itself. And so there is really no need to fear anything. And when I read that story, it shook me, to be quite honest with you. And I think it shook him. So this is one of the stories that I tell in the book. Well, and I was so struck by that story, both because just on its face, as you have just said, it's an arresting story, one that grabs your attention. Here's a person who should be cursing every breath, and yet is rejoicing in every breath. A person who has literally sold his skeleton to science so that his children can have a future, and yet he, he seems, at least in that interaction with DeMello, to have no trace of bitterness. And I think that there's one, and I'm going to call it an American reading, that wants to romanticize that and say, see, the market can fix everything. If we can just sell our skeletons, we too can have a happy death. But that's not where I think you're going with this. And so I, I want to bring another piece into the conversation from your book, Let Your Heart Break Be Your Guide, where you talk about the Jesuit practice that St. Ignatius Loyola encouraged many of his followers to engage in, and that is to imagine yourself on your own deathbed and to think back about your life and your actions. And so when we look at this man who is happy having sold his skeleton, knowing basically where his remains will go and how his children will be cared for, in some ways he's looking ahead to his death and then looking backwards and seeing that he made some good choices. When St. Ignatius Loyola invites us who maybe have many more means and resources than this Calcutta rickshaw driver, to also look ahead to our death and look backwards. Is that the same sort of movement, or is there a difference there? Help us to understand how this practice of looking back from our own deathbeds can begin to help us have more assurance and more possibility of being available and rejoicing with others. I think, first of all, and, and the practice that you mentioned, 
I, I really find it helpful to essentially imagine ourselves at the end of our days and to see if we have lived the life that we were meant to live. And whenever I engage with that practice, it gives me, it enables me to see my life with new eyes. And it also recenters me in what really matters because somehow I am able to touch what kind of regrets I would have unless I make some changes. And one of the biggest changes that each and every one of us can make is to really be present in this moment, to rejoice when we can take a new breath and to touch life in a new way, feeling that aliveness, feeling that uh, possibility that each moment holds for us. And I think that this is the beauty of this practice of remembering our death. It enables us to see this present moment, this day today, in a new way where, you know, it takes us out of our way of just sleepwalking through life. And I think that's what Demello was responding to. He said that he realized that he was in the presence of a mystic. He was in the presence of someone who he said reincarnated himself in this present life. And so for me, that's why that practice is so difficult, because whenever I get stuck in life, whenever I want to make some decisions, whenever I lack courage to make those decisions, thinking about different possibilities and fears that may come up, when I do that simple practice, visualizing myself at the end of my days, it oftentimes becomes very clear what I need to do and how I need to do it. And all of a sudden, the fears that I'm struggling with become smaller because I know the price that I would have to pay for not choosing life, for not choosing authenticity, for not choosing who God is calling me to be or become. So that's, I think, what we're talking about. And in my framework that I talk about in the book, this is what contemplative life or engaged contemplation is about. It's about being in that state of receptivity and openness that the Melo talks about, where we can literally touch life, touch God with our every breath, and then being also in a state of consent where God can begin to live and love and maybe even protest through us. I'm struck by this, and I want to stay with it for just a moment, because you just mentioned that DeMello uses this phrase reincarnated into his own life. Christians typically don't use language of reincarnation. We use language of resurrection. But I think that there's a parallel here. I'm thinking right now of philosophers like Martin Heidegger. And one of the things Heidegger says is, the only thing that you can really be assured of is that you own your own death, that there's no escaping it, it's waiting for you. And what I'm hearing you describing here is looking ahead to that moment of my death, looking ahead to that moment of your death, embracing that reality and saying, it will happen, I can't avoid it, there is no way to skirt around the side of this. And yet in this moment, choosing to live as fully, and I love the word that you used, as authentically as possible, that almost strikes me as a form of resurrection in our daily life as well. When I use that language, is that too much, or would you agree with that, or would you say it in a different way? Uh, no, I don't think it's too much at all. 
it's resurrection while being still alive, right? I think this is exactly what Demelo was talking about. He, of course, was very much speaking from an Indian context, and he was very much influenced by Vipassana meditation, Krishnamurti, and some of the contemporary Hindu teachers who instructed him and helped him to see his own Christianity through his kind of Indian eyes, so to speak. Uh, so I think that's why he used that language. But I think that the language of resurrection is very appropriate here. Any conversation where Jeddah Krishnamurti gets to be mentioned even in passing is a delight to me. I wonder if you could briefly just let my listeners know who that person was that you mentioned briefly. Who was Krishnamurti? Yeah, Krishnamurti was a teacher from, from India who lived in the 20th century. A very controversial teacher as a young boy, he was selected by a theosophical society to become the next big world teacher, so to speak. Almost, I would say, as uh, seen as an avatar or some sort of an incarnation of God's presence among us. And he was being prepared for that role. And at some point, something happened in his life. He had some kind of an awakening where he was able to see into the limitations and abuses of all of the religious structures, all the structures of organized religion, including the group that he belonged to. And he broke free and became this kind of an anti-teacher, so to speak, where he disputed religious organizations and offered a new kind of spirituality that focused on each and every one of us reclaiming the freedom of our inner lives, of our inner selves, and awakening in such a way where we were not only free internally, but also freer in terms of our relationships to our traditions, which in his view was, were very limiting and oftentimes led to authoritarianism and even abuse. So Antoni de Mello was very much influenced by the writings of Krishnamurti and also people like Goenka and the whole Vipassana tradition focused on just cultivating mindfulness and awareness of the present moment. And of course, he had many other influences. He was a Jesuit. He often led people through the uh, exercises of St. Ignatius and etc., in many ways, he was a beautiful bridge of the kind of human potential movement of Eastern spirituality and, and his Ignatian spirituality. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Adam Bucko. He has taught engaged contemplation for two decades and co-authored books with Rory McEntee and Matthew Fox. After 15 years working among the homeless and LGBTQ youth in New York City, he was ordained a priest in the Episcopal Church. He currently serves as director of the Center of Spiritual Imagination at the Cathedral of the Incarnation in Garden City, New York. Today we're talking about his recent book, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, Lessons in Engaged Contemplation. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. 
Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today we're delighted to be speaking with Father Adam Bucko. He has taught engaged contemplation for two decades and co-authored books with Rory McEntee and Matthew Fox. After 15 years of working amongst the homeless and LGBTQ youth in New York City, he was ordained a priest in the Episcopal Church and currently serves as director for the Center for Spiritual Imagination at the Cathedral of the Incarnation in Garden City, New York. Today we're talking about his recent book, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, Lessons in Engaged Contemplation. Well, coming out of segment one, we really set the table with some very big and perhaps abstract ideas about what this book is all about. And now I want to get very particular, and I want to go to the subtitle of your book, Lessons in Engaged Contemplation. I wonder if you could help my listeners understand more fully what you mean by this term, engaged contemplation. You mentioned it in passing in our last segment, but help us to really dig in. What are some of the mechanics of engaged contemplation? Yes, so maybe it would be helpful to actually tell a little bit of a story in terms of how I came to discover what engaged contemplation means. I was trained in different places in contemplative spirituality and have had quite a few monastic mentors, but I did not really understand contemplation until I started working with homeless young people on the streets of New York. Initially, when that work began, I was showing up as this sort of a professional presence, someone who has been trained in different therapeutic modalities and who was able to be there and help people essentially solve their problems, so to speak. And after a few years of doing that, I realized that was actually naturally working that kids were going through our programs and still ending up on the streets. And one of the insights that I've got as that kind of led me to the crisis, one of the insights that I got from one of my mentors was that I needed to approach every young person that I meet in the same way that I approach contemplative prayer. And how do I approach contemplative prayer? For me, contemplative prayer is about cultivating this sense of bearing witness to what is, this sense of being in a state of receptivity and curious not knowing, and just simply waiting there in that state of openness for God to arise in my midst so I can consent to that spirit so it can do the work of healing, the work of reparation in me and hopefully through me in the world. And so that's how I started approaching young people, just simply being with them, putting everything that I knew, therapeutically speaking, aside, and just simply bearing witness to the beauty and the suffering that each of those young people was facing. 
And what I realized is that would oftentimes take me into that state where I would feel completely shattered by the pain that I was witnessing. Because how can you not break when you're sitting in the presence of so much pain, so much abuse, when you're sitting in the presence of things that are heartbreaking. And so to show up in that way without any buffers and to really accompany people into the depths of that, we break. But what I realized in those moments that if we were willing to be there uh, in that state of receptivity and openness, just holding that pain together, oftentimes what I would notice is that underneath it all, there is this presence, this impulse of God that just is waiting to arise in our midst and that all we have to do is just to be open to it and then say yes to that so so that energy that impulse can begin to essentially live through us express itself through us and then all of a sudden whenever i was able to do that i would realize that would bring the right words that would bring the right way of being present that would help me to utilize what I knew, therapeutically speaking, but in a way that oftentimes surprised me. And so it's out of that experience, really, that I realized what engaged contemplation is. Engaged contemplation is allowing God to lift to us as much and as often as possible. And of course, in the Christian tradition, as well as in other traditions, we often struggled with this idea of what is the relationship between contemplation and action for a long time. And now we maybe don't like to talk about it so openly, but for a long time, many of the wisdom traditions seen contemplation as the kind of goal of spiritual life. And what that meant for many people is essentially disengaging from the world, seeing, engaging in in service and in work of justice is something that is maybe less than. And I think that this viewing of contemplation allows us not only to relate back action to contemplation, but action can actually become contemplation. And of course, in our tradition, there are many examples of that, starting with Meister Eckhart, who in his famous interpretation on Mary and Martha flips it on its head and talks about Martha's being more advanced, really. And other examples of Merton and, and other people, especially those who engaged in different movements for liberation. One such person is Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the Anglican Archbishop, former Archbishop of South Africa, who talked about this so clearly by saying that just as all of us are called to a contemplative experience, for the experience of deep listening, and that's what we could call the universal call to contemplation, he said that experience is always meant to send us back into the world, into the midst of human suffering, where we can become God's partners in transfiguring the world. So I think that's what we're talking about when we are talking about engaged contemplation. It's action that flows out of prayer and that becomes prayerful. You used a couple of words and phrases just now that I want to circle back to. In particular, in encountering God and in in being an engaged contemplative, you used the word surprise, and then you coupled it with this wonderful phrase, curious not knowing. 
I wonder if you could flesh that out for us. Help us to understand how curious not knowing when sitting down with another is an essential part of this process of God showing up. Yeah. Curious not knowing allows us to step out of the way, allows us to let go of our preferences and opinions. And especially in Zen Buddhism, that is very much emphasized. And when we are free of all of the other impulses to know, to do the right thing, we can make enough space for God to flow into any situation, into any moment, and to begin to guide us, to begin to to lead the way, so to speak. And so I think that not knowing this sense of waiting in trust, this sense of always returning to that present moment, that openness, that spaciousness, essentially allows us to make enough space to empty out for God to kind of, I always experience it as this kind of impulse of God. It's hard to describe it, but as this kind of energy that just takes us if we can make enough space for it, if we can sense it and trust it and consent to it. It strikes me that there's a distinction to be made here between curious not knowing and fearful not knowing. I think in our culture, we're often taught that the not knowing is a state of panic. If I can't say that the right number of widgets are going to come out of the factory at the other end of the process, then I'm failing my shareholders. If I can't say with assurance that I'm going to get this number of people converted to praise Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I'm failing my benefactors who have paid for my ministry. And so help us to understand the distinction between curious not knowing and fearful not knowing. Yes, I think fearful not knowing makes us grasp and moves us into this kind of anxious craving for something to hold on to. And curious not knowing leads us into trust, leads us into spaciousness where we can sit and wait, trusting that whatever is needed will come our way. If not now, then later. And I think that is a, those two postures are very different. And I think that this is one of the difficulties with our religious institutions. The world is changing. Less and less people are coming to church. And the same is true in other religious traditions. And our response tends to be fearful, not knowing. And so automatically we go, uh, into what we know best, new marketing campaigns, rebranding, new exciting programs that will just keep people busy, but that don't necessarily offer any kind of spiritual depth. And I think curious not knowing calls us to trust and takes us out of the picture in a way. It comes with a theology that helps us to understand that whatever the solutions are, either in our personal life, in our work of service, but also in the world of justice. They have to come from somewhere else. Because if we do it on our own, most likely we will be acting from the very same consciousness that produced the problems that we're trying to solve. 
and I think that this is a big teaching that I wish more and more people were talking about, especially in this day and age where our world feels less like home and more like a hospital of broken system, of, of, of broken psyches, of broken souls, you know. And I think it's very important for us to recognize that and to proclaim our not knowing with trust, with confidence, and maybe even with joy. Because I think that can open us and relieve us of the burden to know exactly what to do next and instead turn us into contemplatives where we can just be here in the state of receptivity and listening. And I want to be clear, this approach, as sometimes it's being used in relation to social problems, it doesn't mean that we should not be strategic. It doesn't mean that we should not organize. It doesn't mean that we should not be practical or that we should not be studying and trying to understand the systems of oppression and what produced all of the mess that we are in. Of course, we need that. But at the same time, how we hold all of that needs to be different, right? At the root of all of that, there needs to be this spaciousness and receptivity and trust that somehow we can receive the guidance that can help us know what to do with everything that we know. I'm so grateful for the breadth of that answer. And I now want to ask a question that has arisen at various points in our conversation so far, because I think that this connects to what you're saying. In almost every answer that you've given me so far, you've used a phrase, the state of consent. And when you first said it, I wrote it down. And the second time you said it, I said, ooh, there's something here. The third time you said it, I was like, I really need to ask about this. Help me and my listeners understand, because you're using this phrase very intentionally. I'm certain you've thought about what the depth and structure of that phrase means. Help me and my listeners understand what you're meaning when you talk about a state of consent. Yes, it's our yes that we say to God with every cell of our being. and. And that doesn't mean consent to oppression. That doesn't mean consent to feeling paralyzed. It means consent to that impulse of God that we began to sense. And in the book, I tell a story of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the experience that he had in 1956 during the now famous bus boycott. He had this experience when he felt absolutely helpless and just felt like no matter which way he can think of acting, he will fail. And he had this experience after receiving an anonymous phone call saying to him, you got to leave Montgomery immediately unless you want to die. And of course, he got frightened. He kind of got the phone, walked to his kitchen and with trembling hands put on a pot of coffee and sank into a chair at his kitchen, the kitchen table. And he just prayed out loud, I think, to God. And he prayed, naming his helplessness, naming his not knowing. And that's when his fearful not knowing changed into receptivity. 
And the prayer that he said to God, he said, I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right, but now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership. And if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. And he said that at that moment, something happened. And he's curious not knowing his fearful not knowing perhaps became curious not knowing. And then there was a consent that happened. He said that he experienced the presence of the divine as he had never experienced before. It seemed as though, and I quote, I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. And he said, Almost at once, his fears just dissolved. His uncertainty disappeared. And he was just ready to move forward. And I would imagine at that moment, he probably almost felt like he was somehow resting on a wave that was carrying him forward. And so I think that's what we're talking about, that consent. Once that switch happens in us once that infusion of spirit is felt. Yes, with every cell of our being. And that kind of leads us into what the famous prayer attributed to St. Francis says. We become instruments of God's peace, of God's compassion, of God's justice when we can do that. And so for me, consent, that's what it's about. And of course, for those familiar with the teachings of Father Thomas Keating, and centering prayer, that is one of the steps in centering prayer, where receptivity is also accompanied by consent. So God's love and action can do the work of healing in us, and I would say through us in the world. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Father Adam Bucko. He has taught engaged contemplation for two decades, and he's co-authored The New Monasticism with Rory McEntee and Occupy Spirituality with Matthew Fox. After 15 years working among the homeless and LGBTQ youth in New York City, he was ordained a priest in the Episcopal Church and currently serves as director of the Center for Spiritual Imagination at the Cathedral of the Incarnation in Garden City, New York. Today we're talking about his recent book, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, Lessons in Engaged Contemplation. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're delighted to be speaking with Father Adam Bucko. He has taught engaged contemplation for two decades, and he has co-authored The New Monasticism with Rory McEntee and Occupy Spirituality with Matthew Fox. After 15 years working among the homeless and LGBTQ youth in New York City, he was ordained a priest in the Episcopal Church, and he currently serves as a director at the Center for Spiritual Imagination at the Cathedral of the Incarnation in Garden City, New York. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, Lessons in Engaged Contemplation. In our last segment, 
you made a reference that I want to circle back to. You said, when we are engaging in curious not knowing, when we are open to the wildness of the Holy Spirit coming in and surprising us, you said, but I want to make sure it's clear we're still strategizing. We're still analyzing situations. We're still trying not to, and this is going to be my phrasing, we're still trying not to repeat what has gotten us into this mess in the first place. And I want to tie that back to what we were saying before the break about this state of of consent. Because in your answer, you were talking about how we form ourselves to be in this state of receptive acceptance and consent where the Spirit can be working and surprising us. But as I look around our culture, our entire culture is designed to take particularly vulnerable people, particularly poor people, and rob them from the possibility of even having consent. So how do we begin as engaged contemplatives to not only live in and embody our own consent to the wildness of the Spirit, how do we make space in our interactions with others to begin to affirm and support their consent? To use the words of Pope Francis, how do we help the person sitting across from me to become more the protagonist in their own story rather than a minor character in mine? Mm-hmm. Well, and this is, I think, the question of essentially, how do we get active? What does this all mean? It's one thing to talk about the practice of contemplation and this kind of very abstract idea of the spirit coming into our lives and then as living as an expression of that. But what does it mean when it comes to practical application and also what does it mean to really live in this way as an engaged contemplative and i think i would actually maybe just like to outline some specifics to help people get this idea of what the engagement part means so i think first of all we all need to discern what our vocations are in life. Uh, I believe that everyone has a calling. I've never met a person who did not have a calling. And we need to discern how our callings, and in my view, the best way to tap into our callings is to meditate into questions. What breaks your heart and what makes you truly alive? And possibly adding a third question, who inspires you and why? And out of that kind of extended meditation, I think a fairly clear idea of who we are being called to be uh, will emerge. And of course, then we have to figure out how our calling relates to what some activists call the social movement ecology. Are we called to direct service? Are we called to work on alternatives? Are we called to engagement in social movements? Are we called to do what they call the insight game? meaning working within institutions and etc. So I think that is the first question. The first question is calling, because that will lead to a very specific manifestation of how we want to address the question that you raised. And then there are some few practical points that I just wanted to talk about. And the first one, I think it's very important to commit to engaging with the world from a place of this kind of awareness that I just named. 
of receptivity, essentially contemplative awareness and not ideology. Because approaching it from that perspective gives us a felt sense of interconnectedness of all life in God. And this helps us to prevent othering, just simply dismissing people who may disagree with us. The second point would be anyone engaging in this process needs to commit to doing the work of coming to terms with their social location and how it relates to what Dr. King and now Reverend Barber called some of the evils of our system, namely systemic racism, poverty, militarism, ecological devastation, and some of the distorted moral narratives that are so prevalent. And this allows us to see, are there privileges that we need to acknowledge or let go of? Are there commitments that we need to reevaluate? Another aspect of this work is remembering that talking about justice is not the same as doing justice. And I think here I propose three different levels of working with that. The first one is to simplify our lives and commit to ethical living by buying all of our necessities in socially responsible, ecologically minded and human scale companies. As Arundhati Roy stated, the famous Indian writer, the corporate revolution will collapse if we refuse to buy what they are selling. Another thing, I think it's very important to engage in what we call in Christian tradition and what has been especially pioneered by people like Dorothy Day uh, in works of mercy. It's very important in addition to making changes in our lifestyle to also make sure that our hands actually patching the hands of someone who's suffering, that puts us in a direct relationship, which means that everything that we think about how to respond to issues will be informed by those relationships. Uh, And then finally, we have to understand that serving others and simplifying our lives is not enough, that all of that, our lives, do not exist in a vacuum, but exist within specific social systems and institutions that have their own crooked logic and are in need of massive changes. And so bringing it back to your question, I think it's important to think about empowering others in addressing injustice, in addressing racism from this perspective, following all of those ideas, checking in with ourselves, with our calling, checking in with our social location, and then engaging in action from a contemplative heart that prevents othering, simplifying our lifestyles, deciding what kind of world we want to support and actually supporting it, and then being in direct relationship with communities in the form of mutual aid and service, and then addressing the systemic issues. Obviously, one's calling will determine in which space we will spend most of our time But nonetheless, I believe that all of those are important as kind of practical guidelines for as to in what context that contemplative experience that we talked about needs to happen. It strikes me that a lot of contemporary American Christian practice is focused on a kind of one and done model. In other words, if I can get you to say the sinner's prayer, or if I can get you to just show up on Sunday, then I've accomplished whatever missionary burden I am supposed to discharge in my role as a Christian. 
What I really love about your book, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, and what I really love about what you're saying right now is you are inviting readers and inviting my listeners not into that kind of one-and-done marketing model, but rather a really continual daily practice of reflection, invitation, and engaged contemplation towards this curious not knowing. And you have some very practical steps as well at the end of your book about how we can begin to do this in simple ways and build towards uh, this daily practice. I wonder if you could begin to talk to us about some of the things that my listeners can take away from this conversation to begin implementing right now, not as a one-shot quick fix, but rather as something that they can begin doing on a daily basis to invite this kind of change in their lives. Yes, and so some theorists of human development talk about a distinguished state versus stage. It's easy to, to create an event or a retreat where people can have a meaningful experience of opening, of awakening, of feeling the presence. But that normally doesn't last. We go home and maybe we can run on that energy for a few days, maybe a few weeks. And then all of our old stuff keeps on coming up. So the question is how to translate, how to convert some of those peak moments, so to speak, into a way of life, into a way of being, into a way of living in this kind of receptive and mindful way. And I think that's when daily practice comes in. In my view, religion that does not lead people to daily practice is not that interesting to me because that means that it's, the changes won't last. And so what I'm proposing in the book is some simple ways of essentially introducing what in new monasticism we call the rhythm of life that can help us to to live in this kind of a receptive way. And so the first thing that I would like to mention is that in this day and age, it's very important to protect ourselves from a life of constant distraction. And there are different ways of doing it. Something that I advocate for is a life of modified digital minimalism where we make conscious decisions about when the world can get hold of us and when we are not available. And that could be something very simple. Our phone is on maybe during our work hours or our phone is on in specific times. We don't just check it every 10 minutes and try to answer whatever comes in, but we check email, let's say, three times a day at specific times and then mindfully respond to it. I think that's very important because otherwise we can easily feel scattered and in this state of constant need to be on, to respond to whatever is coming our way. And then, of course, committing to a daily contemplative practice is very important. Something that I advocate for is the method that we call in our new monastic community incarnation method of contemplative prayer. And in that prayer, you, method prayer, you don't transition into silence too quickly. Because if you transition into silence too quickly, it's easy sometimes to, to go into what some psychologists call a spiritual bypass, where we leave our traumas and our difficulties outside of our prayer space. And we show up for a prayer as this kind of idealized person who in real life doesn't exist. So in this particular prayer, and it's partially 
inspired by the Carmelite tradition, we actually, we become aware of everything that is present in us, of where it's present in our bodies. And then we turn those sensations, those experiences, everything that is present into this kind of a cry of the heart where we engage in a conversation with God. Just in the same way that we would talk to our best friend, where we take off our masks and really just go for it, bringing all of that to God. And then after that, doing what Centering Prayer advocates for, resting in receptive silence, in a state of yes, in a state of curious, not knowing, and consent. And to me, that is a foundational practice that I would highly recommend that people start their day with. Ideally, I recommend doing it twice a day. In addition to that, then cultivating some kind of a practice of presence or mindfulness practice during the day. It could be something as simple as practicing what the great Zen Buddhist teacher called, Han calls walking meditation, where we walk in awareness, we walk in presence. Another beautiful practice is what Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection talks about, engaging in this kind of an awareness of sensing God's presence with us wherever we go, of engaging in a conversation with God while doing other things, while walking, while preparing our food and etc. And then ending our day with Ignatian examine, where we end our day with specific questions. What am I grateful for today? Where have I felt God's presence? Where have I missed an opportunity to welcome God into my midst? Where have I missed an opportunity to become Christ for others? Is there anything that I'm sorry for? That trains us to then be able to catch those moments the next day of presence, but also of absence, of when we check out and leave the room, so to speak. And so those are some of the very simple foundational practices that that I encourage people to try. And this, of course, especially the contemplative prayer method can be combined with Lexio with just spending some time with the gospel assigned for that particular day, where we, again, bring everything that is alive to God. We engage in this kind of a free-flowing conversation where our concerns and anxieties become a real cry of the heart. And then we ask God for wisdom, almost like in the days of the desert monastics, like someone would walk for many ways to approach an Abba or an Amma for a word of wisdom, we can turn to the gospel and ask Christ to give us a word of wisdom, that life-giving word that can infuse us with a new sense of direction and meaning and purpose. So that can be combined as well. It strikes me, as we're moving toward the end of our conversation, hearing you talk about these practical things, what came to my mind is your reflection in your book, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, on the parable of the lost sheep. And it seems to me that what you are inviting my listeners to is a kind of ecstatic inefficiency, an unwillingness to simplify the other or to simplify the moment that we are experiencing with the other, and instead inviting excessive, extravagant inefficiency into that moment. And when I use this phrase with you, does that sound right? Or would you say, no, David, I want to say it in a different way. Tell me, as I offer this to you, what are your thoughts? I love it. I love it. In fact, I think, I wish we had this conversation before I published the book so I could quote this phrase for me, because I think that this is exactly 
what names this kind of a spirituality that I'm advocating here for. Pronouncing and claiming our not knowing, our inefficiency with a smile, with joy, knowing that God is here with us. God can take a lead. We don't have to. All we have to do is just to step out of the way and say yes, and then we will be led. That process feels like a process of dying. But as we consent to that process, oftentimes we also feel that we are most alive we've ever been. Somehow what we let go of, what we give away, is returned to us, but we can hold it in a new way. Well, Father Adam Bucko, I so enjoyed reading your book, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide. I learned from it, and I want to share it with those that I teach. I'm so grateful you took the time to write the book, but I'm especially grateful for this conversation today, because just as reading your book, I have learned from my engagement with you. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you for your words. Thank you so much, David. This has been a great blessing to be in this conversation with you. And thank you for teaching me new things. We've been speaking today with Father Adam Bucko. He has taught engaged contemplation for two decades, and he has co-authored books with Matthew Fox and Rory McEntee. After 15 years of working among homeless and LGBTQ youth in New York City, he was ordained a priest in the Episcopal Church and currently serves as a director of the Center for Spiritual Imagination at the Cathedral of the Incarnation in Garden City, New York. Today we've been talking about his recent book, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, Lessons in Engaged Contemplation. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. <laughs>